and uh, doing various odd jobs. Um, and at some point, I'd kind of just given up. Uh, after about five years, I gave up on the idea of teaching. And about nine or ten years after we got back, um, I came home from work one day, and my wife says, hey, somebody from SPU called, and they want you to teach a class. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 96 of the Kamena Voice. Today I speak with the founder of ElderServe. Please welcome Jan Fekas. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Kamena Voice podcast, where I interview folks around Kamena Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Commando Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. On this episode, I got to speak with Jan Fekas, who is a professor at a couple local colleges, um, used to be at uh, Trinity Lutheran, uh, Western, Lutheran, I'm probably getting that wrong now, uh, used to be at that before it was uh, shut down. Um, so he teaches some online classes now, uh, but he also is the founder of ElderServe, which <clears throat> uh, what ElderServe does is it helps people, elders, <clears throat> imagine that, that, um, you know, he, he has a bunch of experience in building, including like plumbing, electrical, all of those things. And um, I mean, you, everyone knows cost of living and stuff has gone up. And for those who uh, can't, you know, for people who have retired or who are older and maybe, you know, cost of good has gone up way higher than they were expecting during retirement. Um, he actually helps out those people at a lower rate and is able to help them out in uh, some of these projects that they wouldn't necessarily get to, you know, have someone that they could afford normally to do these. So he helps out a lot of people through that. Um, he also is a, uh, he has his doctorate. So I realized in the, the beginning of this episode, I don't call him Dr. Jan Fekas. And throughout the episode, I don't either because he's also the dad of Tobin Fekas and so I've always known him as Jan or Mr. Fekas um, and never thought and put two and two together that he's also a doctorate and when he introduces himself he usually introduces himself as Jan so um, anyways that's he's technically uh, Dr. Jan Fekas um, but anyways uh, so he teaches a Sunday school at Camino Chapel uh, and right now he's doing one where he's going through the whole book of the Bible from Genesis to Revelations um, so uh, you can check those out. I've got links for those in the episode show notes. So uh, anyways, uh, but he also immigrated here to America uh, when, he, when he was like two and a half, so really young, but his family and still that kind of shaped a little bit of his childhood. So uh, you get to hear about that and, and how we got to where he is and why he started ElderServe and, and farther and all those things. So anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Jan Beckus. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Command of Voice. Today, I'm here with the founder of ElderServe. Welcome to the podcast, Jan Fekas. Thank you, Brandon. Yeah. Glad, glad to be here. Awesome. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about Jan. Well, uh, yeah, Jan. I was born in the Netherlands in Rotterdam and uh, came over uh, when I was about two and a half uh, from Holland uh, with my parents on a... Um, a big steamship, or a big ship anyway, and came into New York, and we went to uh, Indianapolis, where um, some of my dad's 
relatives were already uh, working there and had established uh, a business with uh, landscaping and a nursery, which uh, is still there today. Okay. And uh, and so I grew up there till I was about eight, and then we moved to uh, Southern California to the Valley area, and uh, my dad was a landscaper and worked there, and I went to elementary school there, and and then uh, we ended up moving to Thousand Oaks, a little bit farther north uh, in California. Uh, there was a lot of development at that time period, and my dad. Uh, as a landscaper, you know, was looking for uh, a lot more work. So yeah, so that's kind of basically where I grew up. Uh, went to junior high or went to high school there, Thousand Oaks High, and uh, and um, I had five brothers and sisters below me. Um, okay. So um, and they all still live there around my dad. My mom passed away about a year and a half ago. Okay. And my dad, who's ninety one, uh, who I just talked to last night, is doing well. And uh, so he's got a lot of help with my brothers and sisters there. Nice. So, very cool. Kind of my upbringing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I know you were really young when you came over, but how was that uh, growing up? Was it um, like with your family and everything? Did it feel like there was a culture shock, or did it feel? um, Did you feel outcast or anything like that growing up? No, I never did. you know, I mean, having started that young, two and a half, um, I just grew up, you know, basically in the culture. My mom says that I used to speak pretty fluent Dutch when I was a kid. She has tapes of me, but, uh, you know, I, I never read it. Um, and uh, and so it, it didn't really sink in. So, and just going to school. I mean, the one thing I did do to kind of protect myself was to change my name, not officially, but, um, you know, Jan, J-A-N, is like a girl's name when you're growing up. So <laughs> I changed it to John, you know, kind of anglicized it. And uh, didn't really grow out of that until I was like in my 20s. Um, you know, my wife still calls called me Johnny when we got married. And, <laughs> um, and so it's been hard to get some people who, you know, have known me for a long time to switch to, to Jan. Um and my dad used to go by Jan. I'm the third, so okay. You know, my dad is a junior, and <clears throat> his dad was uh, a Jan as well. So, um, so my dad would use Jan because you know people still uh, mispronounce Jan. I kind of have to, you know, <laughs> put my hand up to my face like I'm yawning and say that's how you pronounce it. You know. <laughs> so, but uh, but you know, I like my my given name. Yeah. So. So yeah. back then, then did you actually sign John like J O? Yeah, I would. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. Okay, um, and then uh, I know this is skipping ahead a little bit, but um, you didn't continue the tradition of passing that name down. What was kind of the reasoning? Yeah, I just wasn't uh, a traditional kind of person, <laughs> <laughs> so I just thought it was strange to have a you know our first child, his name is Derek. Um, be, you know, Jan the fourth. Um, <laughs> at some point, I mean, you don't see a lot of fourths anymore anyway. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I just thought, no, we'll kind of start fresh here. So, yeah. Yeah. And we have five boys. So, uh, you know, we had a lot of chances to try different names. So. <laughs> Very cool. Mm. Um, so then growing up then, uh, you grew up a little bit in Indianapolis and then mostly in California. What was that like growing up for you and everything? Yeah, it was, uh, 
you know, it was a, a great upbringing there. Um, I, I was I was never really into school much mm-hmm. in elementary school or junior high or or high school. Um, I didn't really like school. Okay. And uh, and so I didn't really apply myself mm-hmm. at that point in school. Like, I, I can't really honestly remember one teacher's name <laughs> in in either elementary or junior high or high school. I can remember one high school teacher's name, Mr. Martin, just because uh, he happened to go to the church I went to. Okay. Um, so, you know, I didn't I didn't do that well and didn't really start to apply myself in education until much later. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, it's kind of funny that you say that because I know more of your history as you get older and stuff yeah. um, with school and stuff. So Yeah. Nice. Um, okay, so you were living in um, Thousand Oaks then. Um, then is that where you, so you, you've graduated uh, high school there, right? Yeah, I graduated high school and, uh, I worked for about a year after high school and then I went to a, uh, private Christian college in Fullerton, uh, Pacific Christian college, uh, for about a year. And, uh, and then I left there and moved to Long Beach, California to work with some friends of mine from the college. Okay. Uh, in an inner city church, uh, Westside Christian Church in Long Beach, California. Okay. And um, ended up working there for about 10 years in a variety of capacities. I was, uh, worked with the youth, uh, worked with young adults. I was choir director, music director, mm-hmm. uh, did a lot of different things. So Yeah. Um, and that was a very formative period uh, for me uh, growing up in the inner city there or working in the inner city. Yeah. How so? Uh, well, just, you know, uh, Long Beach is called the international city. And so uh, where we were, uh, there had been a lot of, you know, what you call white flight, uh, a lot of uh, the older generation from the church that grew up there mm-hmm. kind of moving out to the suburbs and a lot of other uh, ethnic groups moving in. And so the the church, you know, went through a bit of a culture shock, you know, where we would have... Uh, African American women in the front row yelling "Amen, Amen," you know, and all the all the older white people going, "Whoa, you know, <laughs> uh, we've never had this before." <laughs> um, so, but we, you know, we made a good transition. The pastor was very um, uh, open to and concerned to integrate uh, the church, and you know, you always have growing pains with that. But uh, you know, they eventually had a Filipino congregation that met there, and uh, and some other groups as well. So. So that was a, a a good formative period for me as far as ministry is concerned. Yeah. yeah. So going back just a little bit, then um, you said you had attended a college for uh, or a Christian college. What had kind of pushed you in that direction to to start going down that path? Uh, it's mainly peers, uh, people I knew who uh, were going there, um, and I just thought I'd I would give it a try, and uh, and and really. Mostly what I did there was music. Okay. Uh, I wasn't a music major, but I was very into music, playing piano and guitar. And I started, or we start a group of us started a group called Jubal, uh, which is named after the person who invented musical instruments in Genesis chapter 4. And it was kind of a, uh, almost like a Christian jazz band in a sense. Okay. You know, we had an upright bass player and... A uh, really, really good drummer and uh, uh, singer, uh, w- a woman singer. And we would go around to churches and different conferences and things, and we would play 
play our music. We'd write our own music or we'd do some covers of things. And um, and that was kind of my main focus in school. Okay. <laughs> Not academics. <laughs> so. <clears throat> nice. So then you were at Westside Christian Church. Um, then what kind of happened? Where, where'd you go from there? And, and why? what caused the transition? Well, like in uh, my final years there teaching uh, young adults, um, you know, we were teaching Bible studies, and and I uh, I kind of felt a calling to be a teacher, uh, teach in a college setting, <clears throat> and uh, and so I uh, I went to Biola. Um, I finished up my undergraduate in biblical studies there. Uh, my wife also had gone there uh, before me as a uh, she got an RN degree. So I kind of put her through. Uh, we got married, I think, her first year there. Okay. And uh, kind of p- I worked and put her through, and then she worked and put me through. <laughs> uh, and I finished my degree there in 1981. Okay. In biblical studies. Um, and, yeah, so that was a big contrast to my uh, earlier educational um, pursuits where, I, you know, I got probably C's and D's in high school. <laughs> just because I could care less. Uh, and then I, I graduated summa cum laude <laughs> at Biola. So, and, uh, you know, I had to learn Greek and uh, biblical languages. And and so from there, in order to get a teaching job, you would, you would normally have to do a PhD. Mm-hmm. So uh, I explored the idea of going to England and studying there. And... Uh, and so in England, you can you can get a PhD without actually getting a master's. Uh, you okay. S- you start a master's program, but uh, <clears throat> then after about a year, they transfer you right into a PhD program. So okay. that, that's kind of a nice benefit. And when I was teaching at uh, Westside Christian, um, you know, I had gone through pretty much all the New Testament books, and I'd kind of stayed away from the book of Revelation. Uh, and then eventually I did teach it, and I ended up with a lot more questions than answers. So... Uh, in thinking about what to to uh, study for my uh, doctoral dissertation, yeah, uh, I decided to do the Book of Revelation. So I wrote to three different um, professors in England, um, Cambridge and uh, Kent on Canterbury, and then Manchester University, and uh, ended up going to Manchester and, and studying there. And I did my uh, my doctorate on uh, the use of Isaiah. Uh, in the book of Revelation. So there's something in the, in the field that we call intertextuality. You know, okay. How, how does a New Testament writer use, you know, the Old Testament, which, I mean, the Old Testament was the Bible of the early church. So, right. Um, so that was a great time. We uh, we lived kind of out, out of the city and developed a lot of friendships, some of which we still keep up on and travel with friends from England uh, occasionally. And uh, we've been back two or three times. So, uh, nice. yeah, I, I ended up getting my Ph.D. there. I spent four years, uh, eight hours a day uh, in the book of Revelation. I'm so not, uh, so I want to jump into that for a minute. Um, you put a lot of time in studying into that. Can you – I know this is a very deep – obviously you did your whole – study on this so you can mm-hmm. go really deep on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for those of our listeners who maybe uh, aren't familiar with the book or the way it's written and stuff, um, can you kind of give a description of that and why it's different than maybe other books of the Bible and stuff? Well, it's it's different in, in two main ways. Uh, one, as a, as a literary style, it's, uh, it's what we call an apocalyptic book, so kind of similar to Daniel in the Old Testament. 
um, but apocalypses were very popular literature at the time. So, you know, there are dozens of Jewish and Christian apocalypses from that time period. And if you read them, you, you end up with, um, you know, a lot of the same kinds of symbolism. So if you really want to understand Revelation, uh, you'll need to read books like First Enoch and the Apocalypse of Abraham and Four Ezra. And if you don't read those books, you're, you're just simply not going to understand the book of Revelation because symbolism is the basic format of an apocalypse. Yeah, so and, it, and in reading that, like as a kid, you mm-hmm. read these stories and they sound larger than life, like all these things going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, keep keep going. Yeah, so I mean, you have to get used to the kind of symbolism that was very common in that. So, you know, if the main aspect of apocalyptic literature is symbolism, then the one thing you don't want to do is take Revelation very literally because (laughs) you're mixing up the medium with the message. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, when John says, for example, you know, you know, if you guys persist and overcome, you know, the struggles you're going through and he's talking to a church. I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Well, then when you get to the end of the book, he says, well, there's no temple. (laughs) You know, it's obviously very symbolic. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you kind of have to transfer that symbolism to, hey, what's the underlying message of it? The other aspect which people are not familiar with, but which, I mean, in my field, is just very, very common. Uh, Pretty much any kind of evangelical uh, commentary on Revelation or study Bible understands Revelation as a prophecy that's dealing with a very specific situation in the early church and persecution by the Roman government. Okay. So, uh, you know, the, the book of Revelation is basically about the, you know, the worship of Jesus as Lord versus the worship of the emperor as Lord. And the areas in which it's written, emperor worship was was common, uh, more common than anywhere in the uh, in the empire. And so if you miss that kind of a, what we call an occasion, you know, because Revelation is also a letter. So it's really in some sense no different than Paul's letters to Corinthians or Galatians. It's dealing with very specific situations. And so, you know, Paul wouldn't write Corinthians to the Galatians or Galatians to the Corinthians because he's dealing with very specific issues. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with Revelation. It's dealing with very specific historical issues. And so when we talk about Revelation as prophecy, uh, prophecy in the Bible is usually dealing with things that are happening in that particular generation. Mm-hmm. It's not looking like way into the distant future. And that's also where people kind of get misled with Revelation, thinking that this guy is, you know, talking about something that's going to happen 2,000 years from now, uh, when most of the book's not dealing with that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can pick up pretty much any kind of evangelical commentary today and, and, and learn about that. We don't really have a lot of difference of opinion about it. But in popular culture, it's totally different. And that's partly because people read Revelation through the lens of, say, novels. Yeah. Like the Left Behind novels, which have done a lot of damage to to understanding apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's very interesting. Because I do think, uh, as a kid, I read through that. I will, uh, you know, watch some of the Left Behind. Uh, I don't think I ended up reading through them. But, yeah, it was kind of like this all these different conversations around like, how are these going to play out? What are the symbol, like what do the symbols really mean? And it was more like trying to pin them to certain things. And, and as I've gotten older, it's like, that's uh, a continual thing that you see. Like it's, it's every generation has a new symbolism of what they think this means and where it connects to. Yeah. And people come away, you know, if they don't know the background, they come away with kind of a fearful uh, view of revelation and, you know, I've taught the book many times over the years, and I've lectured at churches on it. 
Uh, and, and a lot of times students will come up and say, wow, you know, that, that's really different from how I thought it was. And, and I'm not afraid of the book anymore. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> just a few weeks ago, I, I uh, was approached by Logos Bible Software, which is in Bellingham, which, you know, sells this Bible software to pastors and, and people all over the world. Uh, and they asked me to write the online commentary uh, for, um, for the book of Revelation. So I signed the contract, and I'm starting to work on that now. That's and awesome. Yeah, it's great, and it's, but it's, it's a bit daunting. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, like supposed to be like 200,000 words uh, over two years. And, um, you know, and they're not going to ask somebody to write a commentary on Revelation that holds some kind of minority or fringe view. Right. So, uh, so they know the field. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. So then uh, the other question I had for you is when you were, um, you said when you went to um, uh, Biola, like you, you graduated on top of your class, what, what do you think for you changed in going to that versus your elementary high school years and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I just kind of matured and uh, matured, you know, intellectually, matured in my faith, uh, matured in my understanding of responsibilities to to people and to myself. Um, and so I, I was very driven. I mean, I think the thing that really saved me uh, educationally was that I always loved to read. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, I would just read anything. I was very inquisitive, and uh, and I would read. You know, even in high school, when I'm supposed to be, you know, studying for classes, I would read like virtually any book on World War II. Okay. You know, I could tell you like the Japanese destroyers at uh, Battle of Midway. You know, I knew all these details, and and so that helped me really with my my English. You yeah. know, and, and my understanding of how the language works and in writing. And so I've always been, uh, you know, very inquisitive about, you know, virtually any topic. Uh, you know, I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a kid, you know, because I read about the Tutankhamun and, mm-hmm. and Howard Carter and, and uh, you know, these famous stories. Uh, and so that really, I think, helped uh, prepare me. You know, be, it was a good foundation for later becoming serious about education and, and, and trying to excel in what I was doing. Yeah. So well, and I think in that, um, you know, I, I interviewed your son Tobin, uh, and we were talking about that too. Of just he was saying how he learned very differently growing up, um, and just that, um, you know, he couldn't follow ABC like he had to do it his own way right. to learn things. Um, and he's one of the smartest people I know, and extremely gifted, especially in in what he's doing with the computer programming and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one of those, like, I do think that, you know, for me, I was better in the education system, quote unquote, like being able to memorize and then kick out the answer. But like from a reading perspective, I was really weak in that. And I think, you know, my wife was um, probably more reverse of me in that she's a really strong reader. And I think as you get older, that is a much stronger base to have as you're moving forward. Because if, if you can pick up a book and start reading and figuring mm-hmm. it out on your own, there's millions of books out there. You can learn anything you want just through reading. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the difference between the American um, education system as far as doing uh, a doctorate is concerned in the English system. In the English system, you're pretty much on your own. You don't go over there and plug your umbilical cord into anybody. Uh, and so you have to be a self-starter, you know. 
if you do a PhD here, you're, you're say, you know, you're told, okay, you take this class, this class, you study this, and then turn this in. And over there, it was like, oh, you got to figure it out yourself. You know? <laughs> so, uh, um, and that was that was, you know, a growing experience as well for me. Yeah. So, so did you have any kids when you were starting your doctorate program, your PhD? Yeah, we had a, a, our oldest, uh, Derek, he was one year old. Okay. Uh, and then we had uh, the second son, Colin, uh, in England. Um, so that was kind of nice because it's free. And <laughs> you just go to the hospital and have a child, and they come visit you for two weeks afterwards at your house, and they give you a child benefit and everything. So nice. very different from our <laughs> system. Uh, and then uh, the rest of them, uh, three boys, were born here. Okay. So, yeah. Very cool. So then upon getting back, what, what did you do? Um, well, I guess first, once you were um, getting close to finishing up there, what kind of prompted you, instead of staying over there, to come back to the States? Well, you know, we're, we weren't allowed to work there, um, mm-hmm. so I couldn't have gotten a job there. And uh, I was, you know, planning on teaching in an American university <coughs> somewhere. So we came back to Camino Island because my wife's parents uh, lived here. They had retired from uh, Kodiak Island, Alaska. Okay. There was a little cabin next to them we could stay in for free. Uh, and we thought we might be here for about three months. <laughs> that was 1988. Uh, we're still here. And uh, and I applied for teaching jobs. I um, I wrote, you know, articles and journals <clears throat> in my field. I got my, dissert- my dissertation got published in 1994 on Revelation. Um, but for some reason, I never actually got a teaching job. And I was working uh, in Marysville for a furniture store, you know, making like seven fifty an hour <laughs> uh, with three or four kids now and, mm. and uh, doing various odd jobs. Um, and at some point, I'd kind of just given up. Uh, after about five years, I gave up on the idea of teaching. And about uh, nine or ten years after we got back, um, I came home from work one day, and my wife says, hey, somebody from SPU called, and they want you to teach a class. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> uh, you know, it was the academic dean there uh, who had developed melanoma, and he needed someone to teach a couple of classes on Paul. He couldn't find anybody, and he found an old resume of mine from Fuller Theological Seminary. And, and, uh, and so I ended up teaching classes for him, and it was actually three days later the same week um, that I got offered this job that another college called and said, hey, we need someone to teach in our degree completion program. That was Puget Sound Christian College okay. in Everett. And then uh, after about a year, I was teaching at three Christian colleges. <laughs> I, was, I was driving probably 700 miles a week because uh, <laughs> one of them was in Issaquah, wow. uh, Trinity Lutheran College. Okay. And I was... Uh, you know, I was like the Apostle Paul of adjunct teaching. Um, <laughs> and uh, eventually I, I stayed as an adjunct at uh, SPU okay. for about 19 years. Wow. And then 17 years at Trinity Lutheran. I eventually got on full-time at Trinity Lutheran, which had moved to Everett. Okay. And then uh, two years later, the whole college closed down. So, oh, no. Uh, so I had to kind of rethink what I was going to do after that. Yeah. So. Okay. So then what was that, uh, once you started getting into the, the academic world and teaching and stuff, what was that like for you? Was it, did everything kind of come naturally? Did you really enjoy as you were getting more and more into it? 
Yeah, it took a while because, you know, I'd been out of it for, you know, almost 10 years. Yeah. And, uh, and so I had to really bone up and, and uh, go back to my books and prepare lesson plans and, uh, you know, uh, learn how to lecture and how to motivate students and different, different types of students. You know, a lot of students that maybe didn't want to be in the class because it was a required class. And so, yeah. you know, how do you motivate them? How do you make things interesting? How do you make the Bible relevant to people who maybe have never even read it? Right. And so uh, that was a good process for me. And it's, you know, uh, it's something that I still, you know, work on as far as trying to motivate, trying to make things new and interesting and uh, getting people to think about, you know, what, what things mean in the Bible and how to apply it and so on. So, um, so yeah, after uh, Trinity closed, it was probably about five years ago, um, that's when I started uh, the business that you mentioned earlier, Elder Serve. So when I wasn't teaching in the summers, um, I would work construction. So I worked with a contractor building houses in the area here. So, you know, I learned how to, to use tools and to work with wood and fix things. And so when the college closed, I I thought, well, I need something else to do here. So yeah. I, I started that part-time business, Elder Serve, to help seniors uh, and widows in the area here. And uh, it's just part-time. And, uh, and so I've been doing that for about five years. Plus, I also got on um, with Northwest University in Kirkland, and with Fuller Theological Seminary, teaching online classes. Okay. So I've been doing that for about four years. Okay. And uh, usually do two or three classes a year. Um, nice. For those uh, institutions, and that's been that's been fun, interesting, very different from classroom teaching. Yeah. So. Yeah. How was that? Know. How have you been able to transfer that? Because that is the. Um, well, especially right now, we're going through the pandemic and everything. Like the online classroom has been the main classroom for yeah. everyone now, and that's been, I feel like, the biggest challenge for both students and teachers of like keeping people motivated, keeping them focused. Um, how was that for you? How was that transition? Yeah, I mean, the main transition was learning the system, uh, what we call the LMS, the learning management system, mm -hmm. because each college uses different types of online systems. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, Fuller uses Canvas, and uh, it's pretty intuitive. So once you've done a class or two, you know, it's, it's fairly easy. Um, and, and Northwest very different. Northwest is, uh, they use their own proprietary system, and they, they develop all their classes. So, I mean, I don't choose the textbooks. I don't choose the, I don't make up the exams. I actually don't do anything except grade. Okay. Okay. He has very little uh, feedback or discussion with the students, which, okay. you know, I kind of miss that. Right. Um, with Fuller, it's different. I design everything. I choose the textbooks. I make up the, the course. And I, I require students to participate with me and discuss with me. Uh, there's an engagement grade. Uh, and because it's a seminary, you tend to get older students. Students are already in ministry or yeah. pastors and uh, and they're much more engaged, uh, usually, than my students at Northwest. Right. So we were typically younger, and they're in the class because they have to take it as a requirement. Right. So, yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, occasionally get, get some engaged students there as well. Nice. So. Very cool. Um, so, you're, so you're currently still teaching, then, 
with those two, you've got Elder Serve, and then you've got the logos. So you're staying pretty busy and everything with everything going on there. <laughs> yeah, and I'd been also doing music at uh, Camino Chapel, you know, oh, right. at my church for 18 years. Uh, I was, you know, in charge of the the band basically, and uh, just ended doing that at least as a paid position uh, last. Uh, last November. Okay. So, but I still help out uh, a couple times a, a month working with the band or playing with the band. So, yeah. And uh, I teach an adult Sunday school at the chapel as well. And we've been going through the whole Bible starting in Genesis and uh, we're in Paul's letters right now in first uh, Timothy. So an adult Sunday school class. So that's nice. Cause that's a place where I can, you know, engage with people one-on-one and, and actually have people in my classroom yeah. So it kind of fills that void that uh, online teaching doesn't uh, provide. Right. So so you said you're going through some of Paul's letters. So you've already done the Old Testament then? Yeah, you? we went through the whole Old Testament. <laughs> went through the Gospels, uh, started with Paul's letters uh, after the Gospels well, and Acts. And uh, we're almost finished with Paul's letters. So. Okay. And then we're going to head into the last third of the New Testament and then and with the book of Revelation. So, okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So then, um, did you? When did you start teaching that class then? Well, yeah, it was probably. I, I mean, I've taught at the church a number of times over the years, various mm-hmm. classes. Um, but this particular course uh, through the Bible, uh, I think we started five or six years ago. Okay. Uh, in Genesis one, and uh, kind of you know, it's mostly an overview. Yeah. Uh, yeah kind of going through by different types of literature. Okay. Um, So, you know, uh, the Pentateuch, Torah, legal material, wisdom literature, prophets, and then gospels and acts as a history, and then you have letters. And so uh, kind of looking at the different types of literature, genres, and, uh, you know, what does it it take to understand that type of literature? Yeah. So. Well, and that's something that I always find... um, uh, interesting when I'm listening to uh, sermons or things like that is, um, you know, my background isn't obviously like as a theologist or anything of that. So I, and even like historical, uh, like historically, I'm not strong on history. So, um, you know, when I hear sermons or, or teachings on, um, you know, different sections of the Bible, and then they take a step back from the Bible text and say, well, this is what was the context was, this is what was going on in the world. This is what the church was going through at that time. It always, to me, is always more fascinating because it also brings in the real world because that's what we all live in in the real world. And I think if you grow up in the church, you can get this feel like there's a mythological world called the Bible yeah. that used yeah. to exist, and then now we live in this world. And right. so when you step back <clears throat> and you realize, no, these are the real problems that people like you and me were having, uh, it makes it a lot more tangible and real. Yeah, that's a big focus. Uh, I mean, I always try to start out with looking at the context, uh, the historical context. And I've always, you know, been interested in history, even, you know, in my early years reading, I would often read history books. I never read novels. Um, I was very fascinated by history. And uh, and so, you know, uh, looking at the context of, of the Old Testament or the New Testament, I mean, we often tell our students, look, you know, the Bible was... Uh, none of the Bible was written to us 
but it was written for us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, God speaks to people in different time periods, uh, trying to speak into their culture and context. And and you really have to take that into account or you're going to misinterpret things. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, I always try to work from the the idea of, uh, first, what did it mean Mm -hmm. to the original readers or hearers? And then what does it still mean? for us today. Yeah. Um, And so those, you know, uh, can often be a little bit different Mm -hmm. uh, from each other. So, um, so yeah, history has always been uh, really important to me uh, growing up and uh, still love history. Matter of fact, uh, I always hated math, which is a bit ironic because two of my sons are um, CPAs. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I actually got through high school without ever having to take geometry or algebra. Wow. Okay. I don't know how I did it <laughs> and how they passed me, but, uh, mm. you know, so math's not my big strong suit, but, but history is, is, uh, a lot more interesting to me. Yeah. So nice. Um, and then I know that, um, through COVID and stuff that you started doing the, um, recording stuff of the adult Sunday school. Do you have? Did you have that prior to COVID starting? As far as like recordings or anything like that. We did. There are some YouTube videos of my Sunday school, my adult Sunday school class. Uh, I think they start with like First Corinthians. Okay. And then Romans, and then when COVID hit, we were in Romans chapter nine. Okay. And so uh, I stopped doing Romans um, and haven't finished it yet and uh anyway in uh march of last year or april of last year really uh when covid hit the church asked me to do an online bible study okay so i did the gospel of john which i'd never done and uh and i always have very detailed handouts uh for my classes two pages um and so that is uh that was available and streamed online and and they're all available on YouTube now. Okay. So uh so yeah, we spent pretty much, you know, most of the last year going through the Gospel of John. Okay. And uh and I'm actually looking to have some of that material published now. So um so that's available and then uh in the fall I started uh 1 Timothy uh what we call the pastoral epistles for 2 Timothy and Titus. Okay. So very cool. Yeah, so all those uh, all those classes are available on YouTube or on the chapel website. So, okay. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, I like to end every podcast with some rapid-fire questions. Okay. So the first one is, what purchase of $100 or less have you enjoyed the most over the last three months? Yeah, that was a hard one. I, I mean, I always want to talk about food. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a bit mundane, but... Um, you know, working with tools, uh, I have this DeWalt drill, and my my battery started to not charge a couple oh, no. of weeks ago. So I thought, well, I'll go online and order new batteries because I hate to buy new stuff. You know, I like to recycle. But what I found out was it was cheaper to buy a new drill, cordless drill with batteries, than it was to buy the battery for my <laughs> old drill. So I bought a new DeWalt drill for a hundred dollars came with two batteries and uh, and so that's yeah that's kind of kind of been nice uh, to be able to use that uh, that purchase nice all right mm. uh, pretend you have a friend coming from out of town what would the first day look like here yeah um, <clears throat> you know we actually would probably take them here to the marketplace mm-hmm. um, you know grab a drink and, uh, and a nice pastry here um, 
if we had enough time, we would probably take them to um, out to Deception Pass yeah. uh, and uh, just show them that area, the beautiful um, bridge and pass there. And and then anytime uh, I'm near Anacortes, um, my boys all know this, uh, we're required to go to the donut house <laughs> in Anacortes. Um, which has some of the, the greatest donuts. See, if you ever go there, you have to get the raspberry cream cheese bow tie. Okay. Which they sell out of real quickly. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, that's probably probably be it. Nice. Very cool. Uh, who is an interesting or fascinating person in this community that I should interview next? Yeah. Um, there's a guy named Dean Hirsch. Um, he was the uh, the president or director of World Vision in Europe okay. for many years, and he goes to the chapel now. He actually comes to my Sunday school. Uh, he's a very fascinating character. He um, Now he's working uh, with fundraising for, uh, like, Safe Harbor Clinic in town. Yeah. And uh, he just has a lot of interesting stories to tell about working with uh, people in Europe, um, like working with the leaders of the UN or, you know, working with Bono and, and stuff like that. Oh, very so, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I would, I would encourage you to reach out to him. That'd be great. Yeah. All right. And lastly, if you could have a message on a billboard right on Camino Island as you're driving up the hill, what would that say? Yeah, I thought a little bit about this. Um, you know, you and I, um, having come from a different culture uh, or a different country, uh, you know, me coming into into the United States. I, I've been thinking a little bit about just the, the politics of this uh, and all the debates people have about immigration. And and I'm going through First Timothy and some of the uh, requirements for like the leaders in the church um, mm-hmm. is that they be a lover of foreigners or a lover of strangers. And mm. it's, it's a word in Greek called philoxenia. So philos is love and xenia, xenos is the word for foreigner or stranger. And the opposite word is, is xenophobia. Okay. Right? So, yeah. So fear of strangers. And, uh, and so, you know, Paul in several of his letters talks about it's how it's important to be a lover of strangers. And this comes actually from the Old Testament. And, uh, and so the, the verse that I would want to have on the billboard would come from Leviticus 19, which people are probably familiar with uh, the statement in Leviticus 19 is love your neighbor as yourself. But just a few verses after that, you have another verse that says love the immigrant as yourself. It's exactly the same in the Hebrew, except immigrant and neighbor are switched, right? Wow. And then right after that, in the next sentence, it says treat them as you would a citizen, you know. And this is, of course, because of what Israel went through in the Exodus and how they were treated Mm -hmm. uh, in Egypt as slaves. Yeah. And... um, you know, if you think about the, uh, the the early life of Jesus having to flee with his family uh, from danger uh, in his own country uh, to Egypt and have having been given asylum in Egypt, yeah. you know, how important that was. Uh, you know, if, if he hadn't been given asylum, we wouldn't even be talking about Christianity or Jesus anymore. So... So, uh, so that's something I, I think I would want people to think about. Yeah, you know, as they think about the issue of immigration. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's very cool. I yeah, I didn't know about that part in the the Leviticus. So, thank you for sharing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Okay. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It was fun. <laughs> All right, and Islanders, I will talk to you on the next one.
Well, a big thank you to Jan Fekas for joining me on the podcast, and thank you for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. It really helps us be found by other islanders like yourself. And for more information on this episode, you can go to kamenocommons.com slash EP96. That's kamenocommons.com slash EP96. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.